Thanks for listening to show 42 of the C-Suite podcast, the second of two shows I'm recording at PR Week's PR360 conference in London. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith, and yesterday I spoke with three of the speakers from the event on topics about campaigns with a purpose, influencer marketing, and behavior change. And so if you haven't yet listened to those interviews, please do go back and download that episode, but only after you've finished uh, listening to this one, of course. And so on that note, the next conference speaker to join me is Stuart Jackson. And uh, Stuart is the VP for Communications at Nissan Europe. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. Now, you were on a session uh, yesterday which was talking about retaining relevance in an integrated world. But one of the things that cropped up and sort of like was, was debated quite a bit was authenticity. Yeah. And I know that's something that, you, that you're keen to talk about. And, and actually, we were just discussing about, you know, all the, the relevance in, you know, all the different media intake that, that you're taking just in the, in the first sort of like couple of hours of this morning. Yeah, I mean, this morning, what, it's about half past nine this morning here in London. And already this morning, I've, um, you know, I've, I've received information and stories across a number of different uh, different channels if we're talking in in customer language not industry language that means accessing your social media feeds so twitter facebook linkedin i've looked at all of those i've watched a bit of bbc tv news i've read the metro newspaper on the way in here on the train on the way to london and you know probably i've there's a there's a, a brand that's standing out to me that i've heard across three of those channels uh today which is lloyd's bank whether it's in advertising or communications, regardless of which department it's come from, you know, Lloyd's has, uh, have been talking about a, a specific story today, and that story needs to be credible, relevant, and authentic across each one of those channels. Because if you're a brand that talks to a certain kind of consumer in one channel and then talks differently in another, it's a little bit like you're, you're, you're trying to fool people into, into thinking about the brand in a different way and it, isn't, it just isn't credible or authentic. So that's one of the biggest challenges I think that we have as brands in a, in a multi-channel digital age where you've got all these different kinds of, of media uh, channels to actually reach your audience at. How do you remain credible, authentic? How does the brand DNA remain authentic throughout each of the channels that you talk to your people to? That's not to say you can't tweak the way you tell your stories to sure. people, but you can't be um, you're one thing to one channel, one thing to one audience, and another thing to another. You've got to make sure that that authenticity remains. And, and, and obviously, you're heading up the communications team, but how are you working with marketing, and how does that, you know, th- this controlling authenticity relate with e- with each other? Because because you know, again, one of the things that, that we were talking about earlier is is you being almost the eyes and the ears of, of the C-suite. Really. Yeah, I mean, I call I, I've call communications the conscience of the business because I think we are closest closer than any other department to the true feelings and understanding of a customer about your brand Mm. and obviously we do that because we we, we have the customer feedback relayed to us every single day through journalists journalists as we all know don't hold their punches and are very very clear about what customers have been saying to them or what customers are thinking about us and that's relayed to us and then therefore we have to understand how to respond and react to those customer needs if you're sitting in a department that doesn't have that access day in day out every hour of the day then you're reliant on maybe a monthly dashboard to tell you what your customer you know what a survey of your customers are saying for comms it's completely different we have that direct customer feedback in real time and by the way we always have done this isn't just in the digital age this is for the last 50 years of this industry speaking to journalists who say oh a customer has told me this and then we as the communications team can investigate it working with the business, yep. sometimes with the, with the bad news breakers to the business, obviously. But we are absolutely 
the conscience of the business, and you see that the communications more and more is being trusted as a, a barometer of your customers' feelings and also what we therefore, what action we need to take as a business to respond to that customer need by the CEO and the chairman of the business. So more and more we have our place on the board where we're able to advise, not just on our communications issue, not just around how we should speak back to a journalist or to a customer, but what the business actually needs to do, the action it needs to take, maybe the money it needs to spend to resolve the problem. I mean, you see that with the United Airlines issue that happened in the last two weeks. You know, that's a, a, it was a not particularly well handled um, response, I think, initially from United. Lots been written about that. But what's happened now, in the, in the last 48 hours, is they've come out and said, this will never happen again. These are the things that we're putting in place. We're gonna say we're gonna offer $10,000 to any customer who wants to put their hand up and leave the plane, and so on and so forth. Wow. Now it's, I, it's worth booking a flight it's just definitely to be worth going on. on United now, isn't it? <laughs> um, that, I, I would, I'm, would imagine, the communications function or a communications yeah. agency has come in to support the business as it tries to regain reputation and trust, has said, you're gonna need to do this, you're gonna need to invest in some action to restore that faith yeah. in your brand. But you talk about the communications team being the, the eyes and ears and understanding what, what their audience are saying, feeling. There has been another case you know, of, of, a, of a brand that has potentially got it you know, terribly wrong in terms of you know, what Pepsi did with their advert. And, and we're yeah. not necessarily here to, to critique that or criticize or whatever, but, but just what in, in, in general, why do you think something like that could happen in terms of you know the, the comms and the marketing? Yeah, I don't know the Pepsi team no. personally, so it's a bit difficult for me to, to give a, a detailed insight onto it. But, I, but what I would assume has happened here is Pepsi is a very marketing-led business, and therefore I'd question where, how, how just how much weight for the, for that business is put on the communications, that idea of the communications team being the conscience of the business and challenging. The business ideas it's very easy when you're within the planet of your own brand to think everything you're producing is great and people are going to love it and everyone all of the data tells us that this is going to work and it's really tapping into the zeitgeist but it's equally easy to get that so wrong yeah. if you don't truly have that real-time feedback that i mentioned earlier yeah. from your customers to say well hang on that, that you know you're on to something in terms of the nugget of a of a theme here but maybe we've come at it at the wrong way yeah. so again I don't know what happened in in the detail in terms of behind the scenes at Pepsi but I imagine that's a very marketing led organisation and maybe they were drinking their own uh, Kool-Aid a bit much <laughs> well, I don't know here's a shout out to the guys at Pepsi if you want to give us a give us a call or, or, or send us an email info at csweetpodcast.com you are more than welcome to come onto the show and, and talk about uh, that particular campaign now talking of campaigns um, yesterday in your session you, you talked through a really interesting um, project that led to a whole change of, of the way that you guys are doing business at Nissan and, and that's your X-Trail um, campaign. Do you want to just t talk through that? Yeah, we were, we, were, um, we were given a brief by the uh, sales and marketing colleagues at Nissan um, because we wanted to raise the profile of the X-Trail uh, products. It's our, one of our great selling 4x4 products and they, we, you know, we, were, we were looking to promote that in a, in a different way towards the end of our financial year. And um, we looked at the brief and said we think we can do something here and really tap back into people's, people's passions. And we were thinking about 
moving, looking beyond the product, which is normally what a car company would, would focus on, the product itself. But we started thinking about, well, how does a customer use this specific model? One of the things that people often do, we're told by our customers, is use it to, uh, to stick the dog in the boot and take them down the park, give them a good run out, get the dog filthy, get it back in the car and so on and so forth. So as a communications function, we had a, we had a creative session looking to that brief we were given a budget a very small budget of uh, under 70,000 euros to actually produce something that's you know when you compare that to marketing budgets that's a tiny little slice of the pie that's but a lunch isn't it that's a <laughs> for the marketing teams possibly um, but you know one of the things I love about the communications discipline the communications teams and people who get involved in communications is because we have those more frugal budgets because we're more frugal with our money, because we don't have millions and millions and millions to spend every time. We're very, very agile creatively. We think nimbly. We, uh, we, we're not lazy, because you can't be lazy with under 70,000 euros. So we came up with a great concept, which was to create a, uh, a prototype X-Trail specifically focused on the needs of a dog and actually produced that car took a, a very you know, took a, a film crew down to Richmond Park in London to actually film the, uh, the the car dogs interacting with it and 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 public walking around made a three minute film uh, pure natural launch so no additional paid media around it and what we what we discovered within the first day is we'd really tapped into something that people the public were really interested in and that was really tapping into people's passions. There's a lot of dog lovers out there. And it went uh, stratospheric in terms of the results. So we've now had 110 million views globally of this video, which is specifically focused on the X-Trail for dogs. The car is now being looked at as to go into production. It was uh, showcased at the New York Auto Show last weekend where it was sat alongside, opposite us was a, a competitor's brand with a $500,000 supercar, all glistening and gleaming, and there was no one on that stand, and everyone was on the Nissan stand looking at the, the X-Trail there with a, the two Jack Russells and a Border Collie in Excellent. the boot uh, live. <laughs> I think that's the first time in all the show we've ever had a dog there. Um, and we've found, you know, one of the most important uh, statistics from my point of view is that the natural search, so people going online and searching for Nissan X-Trail is the highest it's ever been for five years globally. And all of that for under 70,000 euros and getting a bunch of people in a team who are creative, who can think in an agile way, who are nimble, who are hungry, and who wanted to do something great for the brand. Excellent. And they did it. Tremendous. That's a great story. Listen, um, we could keep talking, but I don't know if the uh, listeners heard the big announcement there. Everyone's gone in for the uh, for the first session, uh, so we're going to have to disappear. Uh, Stuart Jackson, thanks for thanks very, very much, much for joining us. the show. Cheers. Consumers are ten times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com.
Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast here at PR360 with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining the show now is Olivia Laurie Kay, Strategy Director at Anition. Uh, now, Olivia's team are set up in the networking area, showing the wonders of VR to the delegates here today. Uh, but importantly, she's been talking in a breakout session about how VR is filtering into the marketing mix and also how it sits with other immersive technologies such as augmented reality and mixed reality. But um, Olivia, haven't we got past this point where delegates at PR and marketing conferences are going wow to a VR? Our demo. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we have. <laughs> and my experience is when you ask people in the room who's experienced VR or who's currently thinking about uh, a campaign with VR, there are more hands going up. Um, that was the case today. But by and large, VR is still uh, not a novelty, but there are more people in populations who have not experienced it, not put on a headset than there are those who have. Uh, so yes, I think we're still at a stage where it is um, a novelty, but also more importantly, we're not here to talk about its novelty value. We're here to explore how this can be used as a tool and really be integrated into communications planning. But it has been the last few years, year after year, is going to be, this is the year for VR. Yes, uh, the, the, the hoops of hype continue with VR. And certainly we've had a few false starts. So uh, the last couple of years, People have been investing heavily um, in both the platforms as well as the um, mechanisms and means by which content can be distributed. And I think what's different now, what makes you know 2016, 2017 uh, different, is that investment. It's certain that in order to make these platforms effective, you have to have a platform. You have to have enough people with headsets, um, the capability to know what to do, to download an app, experience um, what you've put up there. And that is definitely changing. So we've had big investment already, obviously, from the likes of Facebook and the big players, um, Google, probably Apple as well, in the field of augmented reality. And that changes things. I think the second consideration is there's a real appetite for experiential content. So consumers, clients, customers, they want a way to be able to interact and engage with brands and organizations that to use a hackneyed phrase, but it is slightly true, cuts through the noise. And immersive technologies offer that. Uh, they are distinctive because they're quite two-way. They enable a bit of user control. So whereas a mobile video on a mobile phone, you might you know, play it once and that's it. The experience of being in VR or augmented reality is people want to return to it time and time again. So there's real value there for communicators. I'll be honest, I'm being purposely challenging because <laughs> I, am, I am actually a fan. In fact, I, I agree there's, there's some excellent uses of, of VR in comms. In fact, we've talked about it on, on the show on previous uh, episodes. In fact, if, if, you, if any listeners want to go back and check the archives, um, have a listen to show 24 uh, that I recorded in Cannes Lions last year. We discussed a great award-winning campaign by um, DDB Remedy. It was a, a case study. They um, built a simulated VR experience, a mobile app. I don't know if you've seen this one. It was for Exedrin, um, which helped migraine sufferers um, so, so they were putting uh, people in, you know, yes. sort of like in, in experiencing what they're going through, and that and that was really, um, you know, a good example of it. And, and obviously, there's there's other um, good examples, particularly in the third sector. Uh, you showed a, a couple of those, I think, in in terms of you know putting people in in a crisis situ situation, um, so they can kind of experience it that whole immersive uh, feel. That does, though, lead to the question, is there a danger of too many kind of Me Too campaigns, particularly in that, in that third sector, actually, yes. where you get that charity fatigue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also in terms of how the medium is being approached. So we've had, since Clouds Over Sidra, to use the third sector as an example, yeah. 
you know, a lot of first-person narratives, a lot of putting people into situations and allowing them to experience in a first-person um, point of view what yeah. it might be like to, to, to have been there. Um, and there is a certain amount, I think, of building fatigue around that, and that would be true of any industry. So any industry that uses, you know, we see it, say, with automotive, where suddenly one year augmentation will be flavor of the month and everyone's wanting to do a product launch using a simulated environment for a car, for example. There's always a danger where you're using new technologies that everyone gets on a bandwagon and decides to do a me-too approach. But the real value of immersive technology, and this was something that we picked up in the question and answers of the session we just ran, is looking at going back to basics and trying to understand what communications objective you're looking to the technology to solve. And that's always the first place we start. If you end up with a result that's a first person, you know, 360 degree video, it will be because it's right for what you're trying to achieve, as opposed to coming to these technologies and thinking it means X or Y or Z. Sure. Well, li linking it to the communications uh, side of things, so I, I want to pick up on, on something that, that, that you talked about, and that's the evolution of language within comms, and that within immersive technologies, you know, brands now have more challenges um, because, for example, how do you manage tone of voice in a gesture or, you know, or, or in that whole um, sort of environment? What, what, do you want to sort of expand on that? Yes. So one of the, I, I'm a filmmaker by training, so I've been in communications for the last 10 years. I've seen a whole lot of trends come and go, things that we've had to really get our heads around. And one of the biggest ones has been the uh, rise of visual communication. So at the point where social became visual, um, that was a big change for people. I think immersive technologies bring with them a whole new set of challenges for communications teams, for public relations professionals, and that is around interface. So we, broadly speaking, as a, as a group of people, we understand film-based technologies. We understand how you know, it, we can control a message through television, for example, how cinema works. We understand the web, we understand print, etc., etc. Immersive technologies bring with it a new way of interacting. So we have new protocols for uh, how people experience content, and those are primarily uh, voice, gesture, haptics, which is touch, um, sensor reach, which can mean things like gaze control. And if you think about the implications of that for a brand or an organization who are very well versed with what it means for our organization to be represented on the telly and how we're going to roll out a social media campaign. What do you do with a platform where suddenly you're having to think through questions like what does it mean for user experience when we don't even really know how to uh, make content for platforms that use these types of um, interfaces. Um other challenges that uh, are cropping up um, that's being discussed here that I'm tr trying to sort of link back to what, what you've been discussing and that's um, this whole topic of post-truth and, and fake news that, that was being discussed in the opening panel today. In, in fact, I'm speaking to Nick Barron of Edelman Next uh, on, on the show. He was on that panel. Um, but also when I spoke to Stuart Jackson earlier uh, this, um, in, you know, this morning, and, you know, so that was the previous interview on this show, uh, Stuart's at, at, at Nissan, he, he was um, discussing authenticity as a key challenge for brands. So I was just thinking, bringing this back to this whole sort of virtual reality and immersive technology, what challenges do you think that adds in relation to those issues? 
I think it's actually less a challenge and it's more a benefit. Um, and it does relate to, to interface and, and language. So if you think about the reality of, and that was no pun intended, of making, for example, a 360 degree video, by definition, you have content all around you. So if you are filming or presenting or indeed experiencing that content, there's no one telling you what to look at next. When you actually go to film, you're no longer selecting the shot. Um, what we had with the rise of things like Periscope, with live streaming through mobile devices, where suddenly, for things like advocacy or activism, a whole new world opened up where people could tell what was happening on the ground. Even those technologies, they are still making selections. They're still choosing where to point the phone, what content to uh, take, and, and it's a limited view. Whereas with immersive technologies, two things are happening. Number one, you have content all around you. And number two, you have the ability for people to select themselves what they're going to engage with. So those two changes, I think, will have some quite profound implications for post-truth uh, as well as authenticity. You're still in control, though, in terms of the final edit, or are you talking about live um, uh, 360 streaming as well? Which so, I can see there being a, a yeah. huge issue in terms of control. So. Yes, it's true that if you're editing, you are still making selections. I think, though, the process of actually creating content is quite different. So you're no longer able to, um, if you're talking about film, 360, say, versus more traditional film, film media, the cut no longer determines how the story course, moves on. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about a series of moments which are unfolding as opposed to being able to drive or tell a story. So that's quite a fundamental shift in terms of how you have to think about messaging and communication. Are you going to make brand owners more nervous about using it then? <laughs> in the short term, probably. I mean, there's always a bit of a, a pain curve, isn't there, of, yeah. of getting to grips with what does this mean for us. But um, I think one of the insights that certainly I, I would share uh, from my time with Anishin is to get involved and, and try to experiment with how you can best use these technologies for communications. Okay. Uh, final question then. Um, obviously it all looks great and, and you're going to be you know, demonstrating some, some amazing stuff that I'm sure you've, you've produced yourselves. Uh, but the first thing that, that comes to mind you know, with most people when they see these kind of films and experiences is what's this going to cost me because I'm <laughs> sure you know, my budget is never going to reach that. Yeah, so it's always a good idea and we know this from every single other medium platform at our disposal is to think through your objective and work with your partners before you determine what it is you've got to spend, first point. Secondly, I think the um, one of the biggest um, differences with using immersive technologies is we have a world currently where there's no consolidation. So we have sort of the three areas that you need to consider when making um, an experience, which are the hardware, what's it going out on, the software, what's going to drive it, and the content itself. So in each of those three areas, you have developments taking um, a different course, things are moving at different speeds, sometimes you have hardware racing away, but actually people aren't able to even conceptually comprehend what that might mean, so they don't get the briefing and they can't work out what content to put on it. Software is a whole you know, separate issue. So when it comes back to cost, people will often, clients coming to us, um, and certainly clients I've spoken to as well in the past, will look at the hardware alone. They'll look at, say, a Gear VR or... PlayStation VR or Oculus and think, I've got virtual reality. But of course you don't. You've got to think about what ultimately you're going to put on that hardware. Um, our experience in terms of really broadly 
you're looking at probably double the cost for content as you would for hardware. So if you're going to invest, say, £20,000 buying a piece of kit, you should probably start thinking about maybe another 40 to get really good content to go on that. That's all with a very, very big proviso, of course, that it depends entirely on what the brief is, but Obviously, that's been yeah. our learning. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, Olivia, Laurie Kay, uh, thanks for joining the show. We are back for our last interview with Nick Barron of Edelman after this quick break. Capstone Hill Search are global recruitment experts for the public relations, public affairs, corporate and digital communications industries. We are the only recruitment partners to the PRCA in the UK, PR Council in the USA and the ICCO's endorsed recruitment partner internationally, with offices in London, Melbourne, Sydney, as well as New York, covering the UK, Europe, continental USA and Australasia. Whether you are looking for a new role or have a role to fill, get in touch at capstonehillsearch.com. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at PR360. And uh, joining me now for the final interview of the conference is Nick Barron, Managing Director for Corporate at Edelman. Uh, now, Nick was part of a panel discussion this morning discussing what was billed as PR in the political landscape, how do brands remain relevant in post-truth world. Um, and so having sat through that, uh, that session, I know it won't take much to get him started on his views of what this topic means for the uh, communication industry in general. But of course, the benefits uh, of those listeners who weren't here I'm just gonna start this interview by throwing two sets of two words at Nick and they are post-truth and fake news over to you Nick uh, yeah well they're both uh, phrases that I am guilty of having used a lot in the past and over the years have come to regret I thought it was big and clever of me to uh, use the uh, use the phrase post-truth uh, during the um, Brexit campaign and fake news, I think I probably used a lot uh, shortly after the Trump uh, election. Both phrases have some merit in terms of what they mean, what they stand for, but they've also become a, an excuse for liberal elites like, the, like the people who are at PR360, uh, <laughs> and, and myself included, to avoid having to look inwards. I think, you know, post-truth uh, has become a sort of catch-all phrase for anybody who doesn't come to the same conclusions we come to when we look at a problem and fake news has become a sort of catch-all term for any any news source that we don't like very much now there is real fake news it is it is it is a problem my, my view is it, it's always been a problem going back to you know the hitler diaries and the mmr um you know uh, controversy uh, there's always been problems with fake news Perhaps the volume of fake news has, has, has grown in recent years, uh, although I've not seen really any evidence to show that one way or the other. But all, the volume of all news we get has, has grown, uh, and therefore um, I'm sure fake news has grown, as a, uh, but whether it's grown as a proportion of the overall mix, I don't know. But fake news for me is a distraction from the real challenge, which is not so much that we don't know who to trust anymore it's that we don't care who we, who we trust anymore that we uh, we're not looking for authoritative news stories as, as an audience we're not looking for authoritative news stories we're looking for news stories that support our point of view our world view we've all become propagandists essentially uh, we are happy to share stuff that supports our politics helps us signal our own virtue and we're less concerned than we used to be perhaps about um, whether that, that, that story uh, is particularly uh, true or credible. The number of real fake news stories where the, where, where the source is malevolent uh, or, uh, or, and the content is made up, 
that, that is certainly a problem, but that represents a tiny proportion of the overall news output that we consume every day. Much bigger problem is agenda-driven, ideologically-driven uh, news commentary from all sides of the polit- uh, you know, political spectrum. Uh, and that is what brands and politicians and consumers of news uh, have to deal with every day. I, I said it only took a couple of words yeah, to get sorry. you going, didn't it? <laughs> no, li- listen, listen, that's great. And you, there was a couple of things you mentioned there that I, that I want to pick up on. And we'll come back to the, the issue of distraction in a second. But you talked about trust. Um, and obviously, that's something that Edelman hangs a lot of your own PR on with, 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 your, own, with your annual trust barometer. Do you, do you want to just focus on, on how that all yeah. links, links with this whole issue? We've been looking at trust for 17 years across 30 plus markets, uh, talking to thousands of people um, about every area of trust, the trust debate that we can possibly think of. And the long-term story of trust in those 17 years uh, has been the decline of traditional authority. So it's not so much that we don't care about truth anymore. We do care about truth. We do care about facts. It's that we no longer believe traditional authority sources, whether that be an MP, a GP, an editor, a CEO, we do not believe that these are the custodians of, of truth and trust anymore. We are increasingly trust, trusting of people like ourselves, and whether that be our friends and family, or an influencer that I identify with, or a politician whose politics I really support, those are the people I trust. And to a large extent, that is you know there is healthy skepticism in that we we should not act you know automatically trust authorities authority because that leaves us vulnerable to exploitation to corruption to being fooled uh, so healthy cynicism is good uh, the trouble is I th- uh, it, what appears to have happened in the last few years is that we've lapped into an unhealthy cynicism whereby we only trust our own side and we are less and less receptive to the opposite point of view and we are more and more inclined to share stuff that is narrative driven rather than fact driven. Actually on that topic that, that links back to one there was a question that was asked in, in the panel session about who to trust in terms of experts because obviously that that came up during the, the Brexit campaign you know we've had a, enough of experts but you were talking about who the experts to put you know linking this back to brands and their own communication yeah. and, and who people want to trust when a brand is communicating yeah. to us. So, so we do trust the experts. I mean, uh, again, the, own, uh, the most trusted source uh, on, uh, spokesperson on behalf of a company is its technical experts. You know, the, the guy who built the widget, the woman who um, developed the innovation, whatever it might be, those people are the trusted source for the, um, for, for the company to tell that story. Uh, why? Because we believe that those people are working for something other than profit. Uh, we believe those people are dedicated to a particular, their particular field and are, are motivated by the pursuit of knowledge. And so when they talk, we imagine that they have spent years and years studying this subject and, uh, and, and are operating at the front line of an issue and we tr- trust their point of view, which is great. You know, it's, it's important that we do trust the experts. Um, I think where Michael Gove possibly was uh, onto something was that many of the experts or many of the people who are put forward as experts on a topic by, by the media or by political campaigners or sometimes by, by companies are, are, are not seen, are not trusted by the public as credible experts. They are, you know, heads of, head, heads of think tanks, um, you know, heads of in, uh, supranational bodies, 
the public perhaps thinks that these these sorts of these figures are elites um, who are in, uh, who are ideologically driven or politically driven, and they don't necessarily trust them to be independent experts on a topic. And there is some evidence that they're right. Uh, there have been studies over the years looking at the re the relationship between the profile of an expert, how famous they are, and the accuracy of their predictions. And there is a direct uh, inverse relationship between the accuracy of an expert's predictions and how much they're on TV. <laughs> so the, the biggest loudmouth, and perhaps, you know, maybe I'm setting myself up as just exactly one of those people, but the biggest loudmouth are, are, are least often right, because they're the ones who deal in sort of certainty uh, rather than nuance. And, and the media loves certainty. The media loves a hard, strong point of view. But often and therefore, quote, uh, and therefore, they're great. You know, they're great material for interviewees. But I was going to say they're often looking for that headline quote course, anyway, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, because it but links in with real experts. Certainly, the ones I've I've come across over the yeah. years are much more nuanced in their analysis, much more guarded about the things they say, and are therefore much uh, much less good copy. Yeah. Uh, and I think the public, so the public is not necessarily wrong when it when it when it when it, it treats experts even with a healthy degree of skepticism. Sure. Just bringing it back to the, the, this sort of topic of fake news or, or in certain instances let's call them downright lies and, and, and obviously you know thinking back to that 350 million uh, a week pledge to the uh, you know to the NHS for the Leave campaign during Brexit which obviously was dropped the very next morning after the vote but these things can have a major influence on, on people's behavior and so I appreciate you know, as you're saying, it's, it's a little removed from the day job of a typical brand communications department. But I just wonder what the lasting impact of all that will have on the public in terms of trusting the headlines that are being served, you know, whether that's traditional or social media, whether it's from a brand, a media owner or an online influencer, which is you know, something that's getting discussed quite a lot here. So very long question to you. But do you think people know when the news is, is fake or even care? Well, the 350 million uh, example uh, is a very good one because I do not accept the proposition that it is a downright lie. It's much more akin to, it's a, it's a very good example of the kind of stuff that corporate comms people or comms people in general have to deal with every day. It, in that there is a way of making that number work. If you want to be, you know, if you, if you want to make the 350 million figure work, you can absolutely justify it. So it is not fake. It is not a lie, it's just not particularly true or, or, or reflective of, of reality. Uh, it's, some, you know, it's an ideologically driven but it, uh, number. But it was literally dropped the next day. The, dropped so. the next day, of yeah, course, yeah, because yeah. It, you know, 350 million it, it, it isn't really the number that we would ever expect to, ho uh, to, to get back. You yeah. can, but it's not fake news, it's not a lie. And again, a lot of the reporting that creates problems for communication, uh, communications people, a lot of the, the, the content that creates problems for communications people is not necessarily a lie. There's usually some basis in fact, but it's, it's a set of facts presented in a very skewed uh, or unreasonable way. And that's what keeps, keeps comms people busy for the most part, certainly in terms of the reactive uh, side of our jobs, you know, is dealing with journalists who want to get to a certain certain story and will bend the facts to make them fit that story and as a as a you know if you're on the other side other side of the fence trying to deal with that kind of approach it can be very frustrating when you know or you feel very strongly that you have a good story to tell and someone's determined to to see the worst in it and that's why media relations still matters that's why you know um that's why knowing how to craft a story get your point of view across campaign on issues in an effective way there is still an art to that even though perhaps trust in media is declining overall there are trusted voices within the media and we need to 
um, make sure that our point of view comes across in, 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 in you know, when our brands are being discussed. So, so and, and on that topic, coming back to what you were saying earlier, you think this, is a distra- this whole area is a distraction for a lot of brand communicators? I think fake news is an interesting phenomenon, one that we should discuss. Whether we should dismiss what is happening across the country when people decide to ignore or um, go against sort of received wisdom of editors and politicians and think tanks and so on and and, and vote Brexit, um, whether we should dis- dismiss their ideas because we believe that they've just been somehow tricked or duped or um, they're not interested in facts anymore, I think that's very dangerous because we're all guilty of operating within our, our, within our own echo chambers here today at PR360. We've heard a lot about the challenge of diversity, challenge of groupthink. We're guilty of it. Everyone's guilty of it. And fake news can be a way of protecting our bubbles because yeah. we, we simply say, well, we weren't wrong. It's just that everyone fell for the fake news. Maybe we were wrong. And I think we will find out over the next few years as a, as a Remain voter myself, find out over the next few years maybe maybe I was wrong maybe I did get it wrong and I think we all need to ask ourselves that question a little more often and the narrative around fake news and post-truth prevents us asking those important questions uh, above all communications people should be challenging received wisdom should be asking difficult questions of our clients and of ourselves and uh, and I worry that we don't ask those questions if we think everyone's an idiot because they're falling for fake news or post-truth maybe they have a point and so where do you think we're going in this whole issue? I, I genuinely find it very worrying that society in general seems to be becoming more polarised. The Edelman Trust Barometer looks at the trust gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the opinion elites and the general population. And the UK, along with the US and France, uh, both of which have experienced um, their own sort of populist surges in recent years, has the highest trust gap in the world. So for the sorts of people who come to PR360 conferences, we basically trust the system to deliver for us. We think, you know, for all its faults, government, the media, business, essentially delivers for society. The general public feels very differently uh, about it. There is a, a, a very different view beyond London, beyond, beyond the, the, the sort of opinion elite groups. And I think that is very worrying for us because it breeds that sort of them and us mentality. It, it potentially breeds popular, uh, you know, a populist backlash. And and what we're seeing is you know increasing echo chambers in terms of the way we consume news. We we get our news from people like us, and that means that we're all sharing the same sorts of stories. And we and we decreasingly hear uh, views that challenge uh, views that challenge us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we do, we don't we uh, we don't we don't pay any attention. And uh, equally, some of the measures that are now being suggested or proposed to combat fake news and, and post-truth and all those things possibly will make the problem worse. So at the moment, we have a world in which everyone's on Twitter or a certain proportion of the population on Twitter, but across the political spectrum, uh, everyone's on Facebook. Um, you, the, the YouTube is a, a marketplace of ideas. What is starting to happen as a result of some of the backlash against fake news is that YouTubers are getting demonetized, being forced off the platform, on Twitter, dissenting voices, reactionary voices are often being having their accounts removed. Uh, Twitter is tweaking its platform to make it uh, to make it harder for tropic, topics to trend that Twitter doesn't like uh, trending on its platform. 
and Facebook's under enormous political pressure in Germany and elsewhere uh, to sanitize the platform. Now, the danger is that those voices don't go away, they don't disappear, they appear somewhere else. And you're starting to see the growth of platforms like Mines, uh, Gab, uh, Vidme, lots of other alternative platforms that are gathering pace, particularly on the, uh, for the right wing. And we may end up in a world where not just that we, ha we have, you know, we're in our own little sort of echo chambers on one platform, mm. but that we're literally uh, not meeting each other because one, one group of people with one set of political views is on one platform and the other group of political views is on the other platform and, and never the twain shall meet. And that's, I think that's very damaging for, for the quality of public debate and ultimately for society. Fascinating stuff. We could be uh, talking about this for quite some time. Um, but uh, for now, thank you uh, very much, Nick Barron, for joining the show. Thank you very much. Uh, well, that's it for show 42 and for the PR 360 conference. Uh, thanks again to all three of my guests today, uh, Nissan's uh, Stuart Jackson, Olivia Laurie Kay of Inition, and of course, Nick Barron from Edelman. Uh, thanks also to the team at PR Week for all their help setting up the interviews on this and uh, the previous episode. Don't forget to listen to all previous shows. Just go to csuitepodcast.com and from there you can link to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes and TuneIn. And please, 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 if you're on iTunes, do take the time to give the show a positive rating and review because that helps us climb the podcast charts. Finally, if you want to get involved in the series you can contact me on twitter using at russ goldsmith or via the contact form at csuitepodcast.com thanks for listening and goodbye